year ago, Arthur C. Brooks wrote in the Atlantic magazine, money is one of the things Americans worry about most in the world. And he goes on in this article to speak about different surveys that he perused where people, even in the midst of the COVID pandemic, were more likely to be worried about finances than the pandemic, more worried about finances than the disease or them or their loved ones getting that disease. He quoted another study in which over, during the, the, this time period of the, of the COVID pandemic, there was a study that showed that more than half of the millennials with a net worth greater than a million dollars, a net worth greater than a million dollars, over half of the millennials feared losing their wealth either a great deal or somewhat. And when, the, when it went to um, baby boomers, that it was a third of those who had a net worth of a million dollars worried often about losing their wealth. And he concludes this. For millions of people then, worrying about money is not a reflection of whether their basic needs are being met. In fact, this anxiety reflects deeper concerns that money can't solve. Now, I don't know Arthur C. Brooks and his religious orientation, but that is a biblical truth, is it not? that when money and material blessings overtake us in such a way that we worry about them more often than we do not, we worry about losing them, and the studies that he showed were people that had net worths of a million dollars or more. There's something else that's wrong in the picture. We'll compare that with Dale Schroeder. He's a carpenter who lived in Idaho just a blue-collar worker, worker, took his lunch to work every day. And he showed up, just a faithful guy, every day. He, didn't have, he wasn't married, he didn't have a family. And he showed up at his lawyer's office one day, and he said, I never had a chance to go to college, so I'd like to help some people go to college. And his lawyer was rather floored when he asked him and said, well, how much money do you have that you want to go to this fund? And he said, $3 million dollars. And he was floored that this working class carpenter had saved $3 million as was willing to give it to other people so that they could go to college. Not do things for himself, but to other people. And that, that sent 33 people. That's hard for me to understand sometimes to me that $3 million only sends 33 people to college, but it sent 33 people to college. And those people gather on a regular basis and they have a meeting symbolically around the lunchbox that this guy carried. He's, he's dead now. He has passed on. And they have a meeting together as those who are Dale's kids because Dale put them through college. And they can't pay it back to him, but his request was that they pay it forward. Now, what is different between the, the millennials and baby boomers surveyed a year ago that were concerned about the net of, of losing their, their net worth of over a million dollars and Dale Schroeder, who saves his money and gives it to others? And I would submit to you that is at its root, it's the attitude of humility. It's the attitude that this money is given to me to be a steward of, and the humility before the giver of that gift causes me to use it in the way the giver wants to give rather than the way I want to use it. 
So at the heart of most of the issues with money is an idea of whether you are putting your faith and trust in the money because you're so arrogant, you ignore the word of God that says he is the one who is your sustenance. It is him, in him will you put your faith. It is Christ in Christ alone who is everything to you. And in your arrogance, you think, and I think, or are prone to think that, well, we've earned this money. And if I lose this money, then my, my retirement suffers or my later life suffers or, or I might not be able to buy groceries or anything along that nature. Now, let me say, it's not a sin to have money, is it? It's not a sin. God gives people money. In fact, most of you in this room, and I would venture all of you in this room, are wealthy. Compared to the world, you're wealthy. Only 11% of Americans are under the poverty level, and that is our idea of poverty. And I think there are people all over the world who would love to live at the upper ends of our poverty level because they don't have anything near that. So all of us have material blessings that can rise up and become an idol for us. And Isaiah has us in his sights this morning. He has the nation of Tyre in his sights first, but the nation of Tyre is being judged by God because of their arrogance and their own material blessings. And God says he will judge them but yet there are people in Tyre who are doing the actions that are causing the nation to be judged. And it's the same way in our nation. It's very easy for us to point the fingers at the other guy, the other side of the aisle, the other political philosophy, the other politician on the other side, and they're the ones messing up all the economy, and they're the ones messing up all of this. And there is truth. We, there, there are biblical conversations to be had about that, of how the United States of America spends, uses, and abuses the wealth that they may or may not have. But behind them are human beings, and that's where Isaiah's laser is pointed. And he points it to us today. Where is it that we are tempted to have our faith in the blessings of God rather than the God who gives the blessings? The 10th oracle to the nation of Tyre, the 10th one is concerning Tyre. We started in chapter 13 with an oracle to Babylon and we end the oracles to the nation in chapter 23 this morning with an oracle against Tyre and often Sidon as well. Tyre and Sidon are mentioned side by side in scripture and in, in history books as well. They're known as a, a pair of cities that are known together and discussed together. But the scripture says in 23 verse 1 that this is an oracle concerning Tyre. So we want to understand what the oracle concerning Tyre is, what God expected of the people of Tyre, and more importantly and specifically, the people of Judah, and how then that applies to us this morning. So stand, if you will, and let me read the 23rd chapter of Isaiah, which contains the 10th of 10 oracles to the nations. You may be tired of oracles to the nations by now. I, I grant that. But I hope you can see that each one has had a different focus for us to look at our own hearts. Each one has brought the idea of dependence on something else driven by our own arrogance from different angles so that we can see our own hearts and be more submitted to the word of God. Now in chapters 25 or 24, 25, 26, and 27, these, we don't have oracles to nations, but we have the whole view expand into the entire world and the whole scope of history as we're making our way through these first, this first section, first 39 chapters of Isaiah. 
But today, chapter 23, the oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast, the merchants of Sidon who cross the sea have filled you. And on many waters your revenue was the grain of, of Shehor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. The stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? Yahweh of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. Yahweh has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus, even there. You will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped her places, palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a heart, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, Yahweh will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to Yahweh. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before Yahweh. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. I hope you saw as we read through the entire chapter this inclusio, the bookends that we see in verse 1, the phrase, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. And then all the way over in verse 12, or verse 14, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. So that sets verses 1 through 14 off as a section for us. We also see then the next verse starts with that infamous phrase in Isaiah and the other prophets, in that day. So I've divided this passage up into two main sections, and each of those have two or three subsections. And in these verses, we are shown two contrasting ways Yahweh of hosts will visit Tyre. 
Two contrasting ways Yahweh of hosts will visit Tyre. And remember, when we've seen the word, when the when God visits someone, he's visiting them for either judgment or blessing. Judgment or blessing. That's the way we see that in the prophets. And we see both of those as has been consistent in many of our um, oracles to the nations where God judges and then promises a remnant to come from there. So the first way that we will see, and then we'll have this contrasted, is Yahweh of hosts will visit Tyre with judgment. And we'll see the results of the judgment in verses 1 through 7 and the cause of the judgment in verses 8 through 14. Look at verse 1. The oracle concerning Tyre. Now, this is one of many oracles uh, in the prophets concerning Tyre. If we went to Ezekiel, we'd be able to look at chapter 26 and 27 and 28, all about Tyre. Ezekiel takes a, a, a sharper aim at Tyre than Isaiah does in this passage. But we also see oracles against Tyre in Joel chapter 3 and Amos chapter 1 and Zechariah chapter 9. So Tyre is something, a, a, a city that is in the prophet's crosshairs, if you will. Now remember, back when we started the oracles, if you remember back when we started in chapter 13 and um, chapter 14, chapter 13 was a, a judgment against Babylon, and chapter 14 was God's people taunting them. But remember that we started with Babylon in chapter 13, Babylon all the way to the east, and the major, a major power, if not yet in Isaiah's day, about to be, and Babylon will be the one that comes and takes Judah into captivity in 586. So when we end these, we are ending on the opposite end. Remember, these are all the nations that are surrounding Judah. And we have the constant theme, do not trust in nations, do not trust in kings, trust in God. And so for all these different ways, we're shown this nation is going to be judged by God. This nation will be judged by God. So why would you put your trust in them? And these are bookended in this first section of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, with, with two kings in Israel's history, one who does wickedly and one who at least partially does good that we'll see it when we get chapter 37 and 38 and 39. And so all of this ties together into this section, but even our 10 oracles to the nation. We have to the nations, we have Babylon to the east, a superpower in the future, really the, the, the height of arrogance of the city of man. And then we have all the way to the other side in chapter 23, Tyre and Sidon, who are, they're not known for their military prowess, they're known for their commercial prowess. They're known for their trade, and, and all of their seagoing vessels, all the trade in the whole area goes through these ports on the, on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So we have the city of man with all of its, all of its uh, pompastry, and then we have on the other side Tyre and Sidon. With, they're not strong in armies, but they're strong in trade, and both of them have power that are wielded for good and for evil that God comes against because what they have to wield as power has become an idol to them. And they have done it arrogantly and God comes against them because God is after the hearts of the humble. So we're finishing up by this, this scope of east to west. And we start out, wail, O ships of Tarshish. Now Tarshish is, Tarshish is like way over there. Right, all the way, probably over on the other side of Spain, on the, on the western coast of Spain, but we're not completely sure. There's some people that think it's in North Africa as well. 
But oftentimes, Tarshish is used to be that place that's the furthest away. Remember Jonah. When Jonah tried to run away from God, he went to the furthest uh, port um, that he could get to so he could go to the furthest place, Tarshish. That's as far away as he could get from God. So he went to the furthest south of the, of the major Philistine ports so he could go to the farthest place. That's how he thought he could run away from God, to the farthest port, to the bottom of the ship, and to the far ends of the earth. Well, we know how it turned out for Jonah. It didn't really work for him to run away from God to Tarshish. But that's what's being brought here. Uh, that when we see whale or ships of Tarshish. The ships of Tarshish were the ships that were large enough and powerful enough and manned with the most expert sailors to take the longest journeys. And they were known throughout the world as being, if you wanted to get there safely, you had the best crews on the best ships if you have a ship from Tarshish, a ship of Tarshish. So just following through our text, remember we have poetry in front of us, so we have all of this picturesque language to describe what's going on with Tyre. And we have to use our interpretive skills that when we're in, in poetry, we are, we are interpreting it according to poetry. We're not interpreting it according to the rules of narrative or letters or apocalyptic literature. We're interpreting it according to the rules of poetry where there are metaphors and descriptive phrases that stand for realities in the world. The middle of verse 1, from the land of Cyprus, it is revealed to them. Cyprus being that island just off the coast, um, just off the coast north, northwest of Tyre. It would have been the place where the ships would have stopped first and last before they came into the port to offload goods. It was a common place for the ships to start. And so it will be revealed to them when the ships come from Tarshish and stop in Cyprus, they'll be told there, Tyre has been destroyed. There's no need to go there. That's the imagery that's being brought to us. From the land of Cyprus, it is revealed to them. That is the ships and their crew. Verse 2, be still, O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Sidon who crossed the sea have filled you. So Sidon, 25 miles north of Tyre, as I said, commonly known together, Tyre and Sidon, kind of like we think of places like Minneapolis, St. Paul. We kind of think of them together all the time, even though we know they're two cities. And throughout history, they would, they would compete with who was going to be the leader in trade. Sometimes it was t- Sidon, sometimes it was Tyre. Most often it was Tyre. That's why I think the oracle is to Tyre, even though it's including the, the sister city of Sidon. And it says, be still, all of you. And you have filled these ships to go all over the place. And on many waters, verse 3 says, on many waters your revenue was the grain of Shehor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. We don't really know where Shehor is, but it's mentioned four times in scripture. And every time it's mentioned, it's mentioned in conjunction with the Nile. So it has to do with the Nile and all of the trade that we have already seen in other oracles, how vital the Nile was that when God dried it up, all of the trade in the area dried up. So just as we see in in, um, our supply chain today, you can have ships clogging through a canal and it, it hurts the, the, uh, the Panama Canal, and it hurts the trade that's in Europe and, and in the United States. It is a trickle-down kind of effect, that when one area is affected, they all are, and that's what's being brought. When Tyre, when, when Tyre is flattened and taken away, and all the ships that would give all of the, the commerce and uh, take all the commerce out of there, it hurts the economy of all the different nations. You were the merchant of the nations. There were many things that are said about Tyre that lifts them up 
One commentator said it's, it would be a great Chamber of Commerce brochure for the city of Tyre if you just take out the negatives and just keep the positives, all the things that are said. Verse 4, be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. So here Tyre and Sidon being spoken of together. The stronghold of the sea saying, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. So remember, we're, we're looking at the sea speaking And this is something that we see a lot in scripture. The sea is God's creation. God is the one who controls the sea, this place of chaos, the place that that men seem to have no control over whatsoever. God is the one who is the captain of the sea. He's the one that controls it all. And the sea will obey God. The sea will give testimony to God. And we saw this in the very second verse of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. So it's even the the creation giving credence to what God is saying in this judgment through Isaiah. And the picture that is said, the sea, we have the key right at the beginning. Be ashamed, O Sidon. And in ancient times, it was a shameful thing for a woman not to be able to give birth. It was a burden for a woman who was barren. And so this is where it's given. It's got two kinds of approaches, I think. One, that's the reason for the shame. There's nobody on the sea anymore. That, and, and you should be ashamed because all the people you used to put out on the sea, all the ships, all the sailors, all the goods, they're all gone. And in the same way, a woman doesn't give birth. I'm not seeing anyone on my sea. That's the picture that's being given. Verse 5 continues, when the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. So even when it comes all the way to Egypt, they will be in anguish because what happens to Tyre affects them. Cross over to Tarshish, wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried, <clears throat> whose feet carried her to settle far away? Tarsh, uh, Tyre has ancient origins. Some say as even as 2750 BC, Tyre exists. And in their time, being on the, on the sea and all the shipping that happens out of them, they would plant colonies in other places. Carthage is one of those car- colonies that still exists today in Tunisia. That was because they would carry their goods out, and when they would carry them out, they would find new lands, and they would plant cities there that still exist today. And so even as powerful as you've been, Tyre, as powerful as you, as you have been cited, even as you have planted cities in other places and you've extended your reach, is this you now in rubbles? And the natural question of the people would be, who can do that? Who, who can take down such a powerful nation and take down their trade and take down everything about them? They're the only ones who could master the sea. And now Isaiah says the sea rises up against them. They think they've mastered the sea and the sea rises up against them and says you're in under judgment. Well, the question that is brought before us is answered in verse 8, isn't it? The cause of the judgment. Who has purposed this against Tyre? the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. So here we're seeing the power of Tyre, the reach of Tyre, the, the bestower of crowns. The merchants were princes, merchants were princes, princes throughout the world. The traders were honored above all others in the earth. Yahweh of hosts, verse 9, has purposed it. 
to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Now look at the parallelism in verses 8 and 9. Remember, we have in poetry, we have parallelism that tells us things, doesn't it? Sometimes we have the same thing stated twice. Sometimes we have something stated once and then negated. Sometimes we have it stated once and then increased in its intensity. But we have to look at these in parallel because that's the way they're given to us. The beginning in verse 8, who has purposed this? And then 9, the Lord of hosts has purposed it. There's our question and there's our answer. And then we have the description of Tyre from man's viewpoint and from God's viewpoint. The bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. And what does God do with the princes and the honored of the earth? He defiles the pompous pride of all glory to dishonor all the honored of the earth. So God's movement is against the pride. It's not against the wealth. It's not against the commerce. It's not against the ingenuity It's not against their ability to sail or to move goods. It's not against any of that. It's about their pride. Their pride has risen up in them against God, and they have taken all of their own glory out of the gifts that God has given. Let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 27. Get a little bit more description of Tyre on why God has done this. We're not going to read 26 and 27 and 28. 26, 27, 28 are all about Tyre and Tyre's leadership. But I just want to read a little bit of 27 so we get a better picture of Tyre. Ezekiel 27, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me. Now you, son of man, raise a lamentation over Tyre and say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrances to the sea, merchants of people to many coastlands, says Yahweh God. O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders made perfect your beauty. Let's just pause and remind ourselves what Tyre looked like at this time. Tyre had not only the city that was on the coast, it had an island off of the coast with ports on the north and south side of that. And so when Tyre would be under siege by another nation, all the people would just go to that island and they would get on the island and they would be safe because the armies couldn't cross over to there. And so Tyre has this strong seaport that's on an island that gives them shelter as well, again, giving confidence to their own ability to be secure when a nation comes against them. And Tyre goes up and down. They're under the authority of other nations and then they're released from that authority and then another nation comes and takes them over and they're a profitable nation to overtake. They don't have a strong army, so a strong army can overtake them and get all of that commerce under their realm. And they would be overtaken and then rise up again, overtaken and then rise up again. Verse 5 in Ezekiel 27. They made all your planks of fir trees from cedar they took the cedar from Lebanon to make a master to make a mast for you o oaks of bashan they made your oars they made your deck of pines from the coast of cyprus inlaid with ivory a fine embroidered linen from egypt was your sail serving as your banner blue and purple from the coast of ilsha 
was your awning, the inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers, your skilled men, O Tyre, were in you. They were your pilots, the elders of Gebal and their skilled men were in you, caulking your seams. All the ships of the sea with their mariners were in you to barter for your wares. They were successful and rich and well off and provide the merchants and the sailors throughout the whole area. They were sure of themselves. And God said, you're prideful and you're arrogant and I will come against you and defile your pompous pride and dishonor the honored of the earth. Now, this is the constant warning in these oracles. And by now, my prayer is, I don't know what it's been for you, but I know what it's been for me to every week have to deal with my own pride because God is dealing with the pride of human beings and where that will lead us in relationship to our relationship to God. And every week I have to deal with this in a new way. Have you felt this? If you haven't felt it, then I've not done my job to bring this out constantly for Judah not to be so prideful that they think they can orchestrate their way to safety instead of trusting in their God who says, I am your God and you are my people and I will deliver you. I have in the past and I will in the future. And that's the message to us. God is our deliverer. He is the one who bestows the blessings. And if he takes the blessing away, we still have the giver of the blessing. So we are not poor. We are not hurt in any way. We are not lacking in any way because everything that we have and everything that we need and everything in our future comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ himself and all the blessings in the heavenly places we have by being seated with him. Even now, that foretaste And so right in the middle of our text is the reason why God is acting. And he's not saying, if you're rich, I'm against you. He's saying, if you're rich and you become an idolater and put your faith and trust in your wealth, in your material blessings, then I will come against you and I will bring you down because I will share my glory with no one. That's the message. Well, we see this all around us, and it's very difficult at times for us to navigate in our own life. I mean, we see this all around us when we see very rich communities who are saying, yes, we need fair housing. We need affordable housing in our community, and they're all for it until when? Until it's next door to my five-acre plot with my $10 million mansion on it. In searching for illustrations on this text, I found five different examples of communities in the last two years who are rich communities who they've tried to get affordable housing and input into those communities because there's not enough housing in California for all of the tech boom. And they've tried to get this, these affordable houses built and everybody's all for them at the council meeting until they reveal the map of where it's going. And when they reveal the map to where it's going, one commentator says that it it goes like this. Um, Somebody writing for the New York Times, he says, this is what the conversation goes, and I see it over and over. I am very in favor of affordable housing. We need more of it in this community. However, I have some concerns about this project. We have the hearts to do this, but we're doing it wrong, and we're dictating harm into other neighborhoods. And so what happens? No affordable housing gets built. So we see this kind of thing where people want their money and they want their status and they want other people to be lifted up as well, but not on their watch and not by their land and not to drive their prices down. And we say, well, I don't live in those million dollar houses and I'm living right by affordable housing, so I don't need to worry about that. 
But can you feel it in your heart in the way that you hold on to your money or don't hold on to your money? Can you feel it in your heart what's happened when your 401k plummeted? Can you feel it in your heart when you're when the money that you make doesn't increase, but the bills that go out increase by 18 or 20%? Do you feel it in your heart when God says, I'm going to give you a demotion, not a promotion? Do you feel it in your heart when it costs you 20% more to stay at home with your children instead of go give the second income that you know that you could provide? Are you challenged in those areas to say, I don't trust God to provide for me when I obey him. I'll take it into my own hands. Do you feel it when you get depressed over the lack of your buying power? Do you feel it when your vacation to wherever is canceled because your money can't go far enough to pay for it? Now, I'm not talking about just normal things in life that you might say, sure wish I could have done that. I'm talking about your world coming undone. We've seen this so many times with people. Have you ever felt it in your own life? I felt it in mine. Where God who gives blessings begin to take those away and my first response is not thanksgiving to him, but my first response is, what am I going to do now, God? And I have to check this all the time. Maybe you don't. Maybe I'll just be transparent in front of you and this never happens to you. And if it doesn't ever happen to you, chalk it up for a future because it will, especially after today. The Holy Spirit will begin to open up your heart. This is why, and I've told you before, this is why we don't sell things. When we're done with it, we give it away. And it's not to toot our own horn. It's to say, I don't want to worship that. I, I don't, I don't want to, I've got my use out of this piece of furniture or this tool or this whatever, and now I'm going to sell it to make some of my money back. Well, when I do that, I get greedy. And this is what Tyre was happening. And I can prove that from our text when we move forward through it. Now, there's hope. Because not only is there judgment, but there's also restoration. Not only is there judgment for the sin, there's a promise that God will restore those who come to him. Look at verse 13. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped her palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Now, this could be a little bit confusing. The Chaldeans were the Babylonians. And it could be a little bit confusing for us if we don't remember that we're talking about prophecy that sometimes has a current fulfillment, sometimes has a near fulfillment, and sometimes has a far fulfillment. And if you remember the history that we've recounted so many times through these oracles, that it's the Assyrians who come and take the northern kingdom away in 722 into captivity, and it's the Babylonians that come and take the southern kingdom away in 586. And so the Assyrians rise to power, and then in the big scheme of history, the Babylonians overtake them. So why do we have now the Assyrians taking over the Babylonians? Because that happened too. And there were times that the Assyrians came over the Babylonians, but when the Babylonians were not the power, the Assyrians were. So when are we talking about a specific time here? It could be talking about Sargon coming in and overtaking the, the, um, the Babylonians in 710 or Sennacherib in 689. It could be one of those because that's what happened. The Assyrians came against the Babylonians. And I don't know which time is being spoken of, but I know what we're to learn from it. Don't trust in anyone. 
Because if you're tempted to trust in the Babylonians, the Assyrians are going to overtake them. And I've already told you that the Assyrians were going to meet their demise as well. So it's just a reminder, there's no one worthy of trust even when things go crazy for you. So why would you do this? And finally, taking us back to verse 1, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. The summary, if we start with an with a, a advanced warning of where we're going, and we end with summing up where we've just been in the last 14 verses. So Tyre, as I told you, was up and down. They were taken under siege, and then they were freed, and it happened many times. 323, Alexander the Great takes Tyre out for, for the worst overthrow that Tyre's ever had. Here's how he did it. I told you that the people would go out to the island. Well, when Alexander the Great came, he took the, the city that was on the shore and dismantled all of their buildings and built a walkway out to the island so his army could go out there and overtake the island as well. Now, it still comes up later in history, but that was a major defeat of Tyre. So Tyre is exemplary of wealth of the nations throughout history. And we see that specifically in Revelation 18 and 19, or 17 and 18. I get these chapters mixed up unless I go look. But we see this, and you remember when we went through Revelation and we got to 17, the great prostitute and the beast, Revelation 17, then one of the seven angels who had who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those sexual immorality, the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And when we went through that, we said this was nodding toward commerce, and it's using the exact language it's used against Tyre in Isaiah 24. The very next chapter in Revelation is the fall of Babylon that we saw last week, quoted, John quotes it in the vision from one of the angels, Babylon has fallen that from the last chapter that we saw last week in Isaiah. So even at the, at the conclusion of all of history, as Revelation is giving us this picture of where everything could be headed and how that all happens, Tyre and Babylon are pictured as all the sinfulness of humanity gathered against God. So that's what we are looking at here in the last judgment here in chapter 23. We're talking about Tyre, but we're talking about all the nations and all the individuals who would use their own wealth and their own um, sustenance to turn against God and have all their faith and trust in what they do for themselves. But Yahweh of hosts will not only visit Tyre with judgment, but he will visit Tyre with restoration. There's a time of restoration, the type of restoration, and the results of restoration in these last few verses. Verse 15. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of the king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as, this, as in the song of the prostitute. So before we move through this, we're, we have this picture of Tyre being cast as a prostitute. We're not talking about a human prostitute doing her business. We're talking about Tyre and their business with all the world. They would do business with anyone, with anyone. Who knows how many nefarious loads were taken on their ships? How, how much illegal contraband would have been taken on their ships? They would do business with anyone. So now they're pictured as a prostitute who has been forgotten for 70 years. And the text says, like the days of, a king, of one king or a generation. That fits what we read in Psalm 90, verse 10, that, the, that our years are 70, and in, in certain situations they are 80. 
So it, it's giving the picture of a generation, but it's also giving the picture of completeness in the judgment. Remember, the number seven has this idea of perfection and complete, completeness. So there will be this time. Your judgment, you will be forgotten for 70 years. No one's coming to you for your trade. But after 70 years, there will something that will happen to you. And he, he's, he tells us that it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. And this song, which was known at the time, take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute, make sweet melody, sing many songs, that you may be remembered. So it's using the picture of, of a prostitute who's gotten old and ugly, forgotten, nobody wants her anymore, and she now goes through the city to draw attention to herself by her song because she has been forgotten and she wants to be remembered. That's the picture for Tyre. After 70 years, you'll be forgotten because I have you under judgment. But after those 70 years, that complete time of judgment, you will be like this. You will now start to be remembered again. And how will they be remembered? The type of restoration comes in verse 17. At the end of the 70 years, Yahweh will visit Tyre. There's that word. Yahweh will visit. And if we stop there, we're waiting. Is he going to visit for judgment or is he going to visit for blessing? At the end of 70 years, Yahweh will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. So this... This metaphor confuses us because we think, why would God visit blessing upon someone who is doing something in this negative realm of a prostitute? Remember, this is poetic language saying they're going to return to their business and they're going to return to being the, the, the merchant of all the nations. And they're going to continue business with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. But there's going to be a difference. There's going to be a difference. Some in this nation, because God visits them and restores them, will now be worshipers of Yahweh. Look at what it says in verse 18 as we see the results of restoration. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord, holy to Yahweh. Now that's a change. You, you, you see this connection where now what they do, their, their merchandise and the wages, what they sell and the money they make off of it, they're, doing, they're using it for a different reason now. Now it's holy to the Lord. And you think, well, how can a prostitute's wages be holy to the Lord? It's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor for their trade. And when God restores them for their trade, then they're going to do it with, the, with a different goal. But look what else it says. It will not be stored or hoarded so what did they used to do? They would store and hoard. They, they, would, they would pad their 401ks. They would pad their bank accounts. They would, they would pad their, their, uh, all, their, all the material they're, they're holding in their garage for Armageddon. They would pad all of that, right? They would do all of those things and hoard it for themselves when they needed it because they weren't going to give it and share it with anyone. And now they're not doing that. It will not be stored or hoarded, but, but... Her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before Yahweh, those who are worshipers of Yahweh. So when God visits them and restores them to their trade, they will do it with a different result and a different motive. They will do it to worship the Lord. Now, it's not promising that every person in Tyre will become a worshiper, but it is promising that Tyre will be known in some sense of those who worship God. And we see this throughout history. 
Just listen to a few passages. You can write these down if you want. I'm not going to have you turn to them. Psalm 45, 12 says this. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Talking about seeking God's favor with their gifts. Not in a bad sense, but in a worshipful sense. Psalm 87, 4. Among those who know me, and this is talking about God, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia, and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. Remember, we looked at that verse with some of these other nations that they would, if, if you were a worshiper of Yahweh in this time, you were worshiping at the temple where God dwelt. And you will be a worshiper of God to the point that all the other nations would say, they must have been born there. They're, they must have been born God's people and people from Tyre are part of that. Early on in Mark's gospel, we see the example of the nations coming to Christ in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with the disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So in Jesus' day, specifically mentioned from Tyre and Sidon, coming to Christ in Matthew chapter 15 and also Mark chapter 7, we read that Jesus withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And when he did, he met, quote, a Canaanite woman from that region. And she pleaded with him to have mercy on her and heal her daughter, who was severely oppressed by a demon. And after Jesus said he was sent, you remember this story, Jesus said that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from your master's table. Then Jesus replied, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. A woman from the region of Tyre comes to Christ and has her daughter healed because of her great faith. Acts chapter 12, we looked at this last week or the week before, the delegation from Tyre and Sidon that, that comes to King Herod Agrippa before he is struck down by God for his pride. And they're the people who wanted to make amends with him because they needed his water supply. And so they came and they fawned over his speech and God kills um, Herod Agrippa and he's eaten by worms because the people said the voice of God and not of a man, and the angel struck him down. But it ends, that section ends with this, but the word of God increased and multiplied. It increased and multiplied amongst the people of Tyre and Sidon who were present to watch that. In Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, and the ship docked in Tyre to unload, for, unload cargo. And for seven days he was encouraged by disciples in Tyre. And when they left to continue their journey, all the disciples from Tyre, the scripture says, with wives and children accompanied us, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board ship and they returned home. So Paul, encouraged and ministered to by disciples found in Tyre as he gets ready to go back on the ship and head south to Ptolemy on his way to Jerusalem. The word of God was fruitful in Tyre and Sidon, even though they didn't have the same light as those cities in which Jesus ministered. Remember this, then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, according to Matthew 11. 
because they did not repent. And he said, woe to you, Chorazon, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So even though they didn't have the same light as those communities that Jesus went into and did his mighty works, they still had people in Tyre and Sidon that came to Christ. And we also know that this, this will be part of the nations in Revelation 21 who come into the new Jerusalem. The kings of the earth will bring the wealth of the nations into the new Jerusalem. And we know that in the new Jerusalem, the very next verse tells us that there will be no evil that enters in. So these merchants will lead the way. And how do they do that? Because Christ came, according to the Old Testament scriptures, lived a perfect life, died, was resurrected, and is seated at the right hand of the Father so that all who believe in him will have life and be in that new Jerusalem because that new Jerusalem is us. It is the people of God. And there will be people from Tyre and Sidon as part of that because of the work of Christ. And those who came to faith in Christ in the Old came to faith in the Old Testament, were looking forward to Christ, those from Tyre and those from Sidon, along with all the other nations we have promised for the remnant. So we, they are in, we are in the same line. We are in the same line of salvation because of the perfect work of Christ. So when we see the merchandise and the wages of the kingdom of Tyre becoming holy to the Lord, that has generational effect because of those who come to Christ and put their faith and trust in him and him alone. Now, we are people who profess to enter into that line, right? We profess to be the people who are in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places and being blessed by him at all the time. And yet the Bible constantly warns us about what we do with and don't do with our wealth. Turn, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. going to start in verse 6 by way of just personal application for us so that we don't fall under the warnings of Tyre. 1 Timothy 6, 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you think money can be used to reveal that you are not a believer? This is the primary teaching in scripture for us of what we do with our wealth and how we use it and how we worship it instead of the Savior. And it will lead us into destruction, into ruin if we desire to be rich for the sake of being rich. And you're not arguing with me. You'd be arguing with Paul who speaks through the Holy Spirit on behalf of God to us that if that's what we seek, we can be led into destruction. And, for, and, and for, for what we know about salvation, that means that you would never save to begin with and God might use your love of money to reveal that you never knew him in the first place. You would fall under the warning passages of Hebrews right with money right in front of you, the desire to be rich. 
Now, let me just reorient us for a minute. If you desire to have a lot of money at a young age so that you can spend your life planting churches in places that don't have churches and sending missionaries to places that don't have missionaries, or you're going to go yourself, then you're not desiring to be rich. You're desiring to advance the kingdom in a better way, and you're asking God to bless your abilities and talents to accomplish that. But don't you even think about getting your million dollars and then going off on an island someplace on vacation instead of honoring the requests that that you ask God for. We need people with a lot of money because we want to plant churches in places that we can't reach. We need people with money to support the work of missions and the work of the preaching of the gospel. So it's not about desiring that. It's what you desire it for and how you desire to use it. Let me just challenge you. What? What are you planning to do in your retirement? You said you talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, there's a reason. Because we in contemporary Christianity think retirement should start at an earlier age and be a lot more easy than than what we have done in past generations. We have people that want to retire at 30 or 40 because they can make their millions by then and sit around and do nothing. Now, if God gives you that, don't you think he's got a plan for the rest of your life too? I'd love for a lot of us to be millionaires and see what God would do with a church devoted to him with our wealth and not devoted to the idolatry of retiring on our back porch or in our hunting lodge or in our travels or wherever it might be. Now, I always have to put this caveat because somebody's going to go away and say, he doesn't want me to take vacation. He doesn't want me to go hunting. He doesn't want me to retire. And if you heard that, you didn't listen to what I said. You listened to what you wanted to hear because I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your heart. Where is your heart? Because where your treasure is, that's going to be where your heart is. Look at verse 11, 1 Timothy 6. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Jump down to verse 17. Not because 13 through 16 aren't important, but look at what verse 17 picks up that thought again. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul would agree with what I said, wouldn't he? This is our calling. And this is a calling that needs to hit home for us when we live in a rich community in a rich nation during a rich time. Now, you could take Paul's words to Timothy and superimpose them over Isaiah's words to Tyre, and we'd have the same message, wouldn't we? We have exactly the same message. So, where are you today? Where are you, child of God? Where's your heart with your wealth? And I'm not talking about what your words would say. I'm talking about what your heart would scream if we could hear it. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your blessings to us, for we know that all good gifts come from you. All good gifts come from you, the Father of lights, and we do not snarl at those gifts, Lord, but we know our hearts, and we ask you, 
Lord, that because you have redeemed us through the blood of your Son, you have set us apart for your glory. You have charged us to take the gospel to the world. And you have told us that you are enough and that Christ is enough. And that even if you choose to bless us with wealth, material blessings, our hope and our trust is in you. And those blessings should be used to pursue righteousness, to pursue godliness, to pursue the gospel reaching all nations. For we know that when we get to the new heavens and new earth, when we're in the new Jerusalem, we will worship with Tyrians there. We will worship with Sidonians there. We will worship with those from Cush and from Babylon and from Assyria. We will worship, Father, with the nations. And so we ask you to give us, not only to give us the, the blessings, but to give us the wherewithal to use them to advance your kingdom because that's what you are doing, is summing all things up in Christ. So we praise you, Father, for the truth of your word. We praise you for the wealth and the blessings that you give us. We ask you, Father, to have our hearts turn to treasure you, to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, to have our things, the things that we have in this earth, aligned rightly and prioritized rightly so that we set our minds on the things that are above in heaven where Christ is instead of the things that are on, here below. So make it so for us, and we ask this in Jesus' name.